Chapter 8 of Emily of New Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Emily of New Moon by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Chapter 8. Emily of New Moon. Chapter 8. Trial by Fire. Aunt Elizabeth drove Emily to school the next morning. Aunt Laura had thought that since there was only a month before vacation, it was not worth while for Emily to start school. But Aunt Elizabeth did not yet feel comfortable with a small niece skipping around New Moon, poking into everything insatiably, and was resolved that Emily must go to school to get her out of the way. Emily herself, always avid for new experiences, was quite keen to go, but for all that she was seething with rebellion as they drove along. Aunt Elizabeth had produced a terrible gingham apron and an equally terrible gingham sunbonnet from somewhere in the new moon garret and made Emily put them on. The apron was a long, sack-like garment, high in the neck, with sleeves. Those sleeves were the crowning indignity. Emily had never seen any little girl wearing an apron with sleeves. She rebelled to the point of tears over wearing it. But Aunt Elizabeth was not going to have any nonsense. Emily saw the Murray look then, and when she saw it, she buttoned her rebellious feelings tightly up in her soul and let Aunt Elizabeth put the apron on her. It was one of your mother's aprons when she was a little girl, Emily, said Aunt Laura comfortingly and rather sentimentally. Then, said Emily, uncomforted and unsentimental, I don't wonder she ran away with father when she grew up. Aunt Elizabeth finished buttoning the apron and gave Emily a none-too-gentle push away from her. Put on your sunbonnet, she ordered. Oh, please, Aunt Elizabeth, don't make me wear that horrid thing. Aunt Elizabeth, wasting no further words, picked up the bonnet and tied it on Emily's head. Emily had to yield. But from the depths of the sunbonnet issued a voice, defiant though tremulous. Anyway, Aunt Elizabeth, you can't boss God, it said. Aunt Elizabeth was too cross to speak all the way to the schoolhouse. She introduced Emily to Miss Brownwell and drove away. School was already in, so Emily hung her sunbonnet on the porch nail and went to the desk Miss Brownwell assigned her. She had already made up her mind that she did not like Miss Brownwell and never would like her. Miss Brownwell had the reputation in Blairwater of being a fine teacher, due mainly to the fact that she was a strict disciplinarian and kept excellent order. She was a thin, middle-aged person with a colorless face, prominent teeth, most of which she showed when she laughed, and cold, watchful gray eyes, colder even than Aunt Ruth's. Emily felt as if those merciless, agate eyes saw clean through her to the core of her sensitive little soul. Emily could be fearless enough on occasion, but in the presence of a nature which she instinctively felt to be hostile to hers, she shrank away in something that was more repulsion than fear. 
She was a target for curious glances all the morning. The Blairwater School was large, and there were at least twenty little girls about her own age. Emily looked back curiously at them all and thought the way they whispered to each other behind their hands and books when they looked at her very ill-mannered. She felt suddenly unhappy and homesick and lonesome, and she wanted her father and her old home and the dear things she loved. The new moon girl is crying, whispered a black-eyed girl across the aisle. And then came a cruel little giggle. What is the matter with you, Emily? said Miss Brownwell suddenly and accusingly. Emily was silent. She could not tell Miss Brownwell what was the matter with her, especially when Miss Brownwell used such a tone. When I ask one of my pupils a question, Emily, I'm accustomed to having an answer. Why are you crying? There was another giggle from across the aisle. Emily lifted miserable eyes and in her extremity fell back on a phrase of her father's. It is a matter that concerns only myself, she said. A red spot suddenly appeared in Miss Brownwell's sallow cheek. Her eyes gleamed with cold fire. You will remain in during recess as a punishment for your impertinence, she said but she left Emily alone the rest of the day. Emily did not in the least mind staying in at recess, for acutely sensitive to her environment as she was, she realized that for some reason she could not fathom, the atmosphere of the school was antagonistic. The glances cast at her were not only curious, but ill-natured. She did not want to go out to the playground with those girls. She did not want to go to school in Blairwater, but she would not cry any more. She sat erect and kept her eyes on her book. Suddenly, a soft, malignant hiss came across the aisle. Miss Pridey, Miss Pridey, Emily looked across at the girl. Large, steady, purplish-gray eyes gazed into beady, twinkling black ones, gazed unquailingly, with something in them that cowed and compelled. The black eyes wavered and fell, their owner covering her retreat with another giggle and a toss of her short braid of hair. I can master her, thought Emily with a thrill of triumph. But there is strength in numbers, and at noon hour, Emily found herself standing alone on the playground facing a crowd of unfriendly faces. Children can be the most cruel creatures alive. They have the herd instinct of prejudice against any outsider, and they are merciless in its indulgence. Emily, viewed as a stranger and one of the proud Murrays, two counts against her, and there was about her, small and gingham and sunbonneted as she was, a certain reserve and dignity and fineness that they resented. And they resented the level way she looked at them, with that disdainful face under cloudy black hair, instead of being shy and drooping as become an interloper on probation. You're a proud one, said Black Eyes. Oh my, you may have buttoned boots, but you are living on charity. 
Emily had not wanted to put on the button boots. She wanted to go barefoot as she always done in the summer. But Aunt Elizabeth told her that no child from New Moon had ever gone barefoot to school. Oh, just look at the baby apron, laughed another girl with a head of chestnut curls. Now Emily flushed. This was indeed the vulnerable point in her armor. Delighted at her success in drawing blood, the curled one tried again. Is that your grandmother's sunbonnet? There was a chorus of giggles. Oh, she wears a sunbonnet to save her complexion, said the bigger girl. That's the Murray pride. The Murrays are rotten with pride, my mother says. You're awfully ugly, said a fat, squat little miss, nearly as broad as she was long. Your ears look like cats. You needn't be so proud, said Black Eyes. Your kitchen ceiling isn't plastered even. And your cousin Jimmy's an idiot, said Chestnut Curls. He isn't, cried Emily. He has more sense than any of you. You can say what you like about me, but you are not going to insult my family. If you say one more word about them, I'll look you over with the evil eye. Nobody understood what this threat meant, but that made it all the more effective. It produced a brief silence. Then the baiting began again in a different form. Can you sing? asked a thin, freckled girl who yet contrived to be very pretty in spite of the thinness and freckles. No, said Emily. Can you dance? Can you sew? No. Can you cook? No. Can you knit lace? No. Can you crochet? No. Then what can you do? said the freckled one in a contemptuous tone. I can write poetry, said Emily, without in the least meaning to say it. But in that instant, she knew she could write poetry. And with this queer, unreasonable conviction came the flash. Right there, surrounded by hostility and suspicion, fighting alone for her standing, without backing or advantage, came the wonderful moment when the soul seemed to cast aside the bonds of the flesh and spring upward to the stars. The rapture and delight on Emily's face amazed and enraged her foes. They thought it a manifestation of Murray pride in an uncommon accomplishment. You lie, said Black Eyes bluntly. A star does not lie, retorted Emily. The flash was gone, but its uplift remained. She looked them all over with a cool detachment that quelled them temporarily. Why don't you like me? she asked directly. There was no reply. Emily looked straight at Chestnut Curls and repeated her question. Chestnut Curls felt herself compelled to answer it. Because you ain't a bit like us, she muttered. I wouldn't want to be, said Emily scornfully. Oh my, you are one of the chosen people, mocked Black Eyes. Of course I am, retorted Emily. She walked away to the schoolhouse, conqueror in that battle. But the forces against her were not so easily cowed. There was much whispering and plotting after she had gone in a conference with some of the boys, and the handing over of the bedizened pencils and chews of gum for the value received. An agreeable sense of victory and the afterglow of the flash 
carried Emily through the afternoon in spite of the fact that Miss Brownwell ridiculed her for her mistakes in spelling. Miss Brownwell was very fond of ridiculing her pupils. All the girls in the class giggled except one, who had not been there in the morning and was consequently at the tail. Emily had been wondering who she was. She was as unlike the rest of the girls as Emily herself, but in a totally different style. She was tall, oddly dressed in an overlong dress of faded striped print, and barefooted. Her thick hair, cut short, fluffed out all around her head in a bushy wave that seemed to be of brilliant spun gold, and her glowing eyes were of a brown so light and translucent as to be almost amber. Her mouth was large, as she had saucy pronounced chin. Pretty she might not be called, but her face was so vivid and mobile that Emily could not drag her fascinated eyes from it and she was the only girl in class who did not, sometime through the lesson, get a barb of sarcasm through Miss Brownwell, though she made as many mistakes as the rest of them. At recess, one of the girls came up to Emily with a box in her hand. Emily knew that she was Rhoda Stewart, and thought her very pretty and sweet. Rhoda had been in the crowd around her at the noon hour, but she had not said anything. She was dressed in crispy pink gingham, and she had smooth, lustrous braids of sugar-brown hair, big blue eyes, and a rosebud mouth, doll-like features, and a sweet voice. If Miss Brownwell could be said to have a favorite, it was Rhoda Stewart, and she seemed generally popular in her own set and much petted by the older girls. Here is a present for you, she said sweetly. Emily took the box unsuspectingly. Rhoda's smile would have disarmed any suspicion. For a moment, Emily was happily anticipant as she removed the cover. Then, with a shriek, she flung the box from her and stood pale and trembling from head to foot. There was a snake in the box. Whether dead or alive, she did not know, and she did not care. For any snake, Emily had a horror and a repulsion she could not overcome. The very sight of one almost paralyzed her. A chorus of giggles ran around the porch. Before I'd be so scared of an old snake, scoffed Black Eyes. Can you write poetry about that? giggled Chestnut Curls. I hate you, I hate you, cried Emily. You are mean, hateful girls. Calling names isn't ladylike, said the freckled one. I thought a Murray would be too grand for that. If you come to school tomorrow, Miss Starr, said Black Eyes deliberately, we're going to take that snake and put it around your neck. Let me see you do it, cried a clear ringing voice. Into their midst with a bound came the girl with amber eyes and short hair. Just let me see you do it, Jeanie Strang. This isn't any of your business, I.L. Burnley, muttered Jeanie sullenly. Oh, isn't it? Don't you sass me, piggy eyes. I.L. walked up to the retreating Jeanie and shook a sunburned fist in her face. If I catch you teasing Emily Starr tomorrow with that snake again, I'll take it by the tail and you by your tail and slosh you across the face with it. Mind that, piggy eyes.
Now you go and pick up that precious snake of yours and throw it down on the ash pile. Jenny actually went and did it. I all faced the others. Clear out, all of you, and leave the new moon girl alone after this, she said. If I hear any more meddling and sneaking, I'll slit your throats and rip out your heart and tear your eyes out. Yes, I'll cut off your ears and wear them pinned on my dress. Cowed by these ferocious threats, or something in Isle's personality, Emily's persecutors drifted away. Isle turned to Emily. Don't mind them, she said contemptuously. They're jealous of you, that's all. Jealous because you live at New Moon and ride in a fringe top buggy and wear buttoned boots. You smack their mugs if they give you any more of their jaw. I vaulted the fence and tore off into the maple bush without another glance at Emily. Only Rhoda Stewart remained. Emily, I'm awfully sorry, she said, rolling her big blue eyes appealingly. I didn't know there was a snake in that box. Cross my heart, I didn't. The girls just told me it was a present for you. You're not mad at me, are you? Because I like you. Emily had been mad and hurt and outraged, but this little bit of friendliness melted her instantly. In a moment, she and Rhoda had their arms around each other parading across the playground. I'm going to ask Miss Brownwell to let you sit with me, said Rhoda. I used to sit with Annie Greg, but she moved away. You'd like to sit with me, wouldn't you? I'd love it, said Emily warmly. She was as happy as she had been miserable. Here was the friend of her dreams. Already she worshipped Rhoda. We ought to sit together, Rhoda said importantly. We belong to the two best families in Blairwater. Do you know that if my father had his rights, he would be on the throne in England? England, said Emily, too amazed to be anything but an echo. Yes, we are descendants from the kings of Scotland, said Rhoda. So of course we don't associate with everybody. My father keeps store and I'm taking music lessons. Is your Aunt Elizabeth going to give you music lessons? I don't know. She ought to. She's very rich, isn't she? I don't know, Emily said again. She wished Rhoda would not ask such questions. Emily thought it hardly good manners. But surely a descendant of the Stuart Kings ought to know the rules of breeding if anybody did. She's got an awful temper, hasn't she? asked Rhoda. No, she hasn't, cried Emily. Well, she nearly killed your cousin Jimmy in one of her rages, said Rhoda. That's true, Mother told me. Why doesn't your Aunt Laura get married? Has she got a beau? What wages does your Aunt Elizabeth pay your cousin Jimmy? I don't know. Well, said Rhoda, rather disappointingly, I suppose you haven't been at New Moon long enough to find things out. But it must be very different from what you've been used to, I guess. Your father was as poor as a church mouse, wasn't he? My father was very, very rich man, said Emily deliberately. Rhoda stared. I thought he hadn't a cent. Neither he had, but people can be rich without money. I don't see how, but anyhow, you'll be rich some day. Your Aunt Elizabeth will likely leave you all her money, Mother says. So I don't care if you are living on charity. I love you, and I'm going to stick up for you. Have you got a bow, Emily? No! cried Emily, blushing violently and quite scandalized at the idea. Why, I'm only eleven. Oh, 
Everybody in our class has a bow. Mine is Teddy Kent. I shook hands with him after I counted nine stars for nine nights without missing a night. If you do that, the first boy you shake hands with afterwards will be your beau. But it's awfully hard to do. It took me all winter. Teddy wasn't in school today. He's been sick all June. He's the best looking boy in Blair Water. You'll have to have a beau too, Emily. I won't, declared Emily angrily. I don't know a thing about bows and I won't have one. Rhoda tossed her head. Oh, I suppose you think there's nobody good enough for you living in New Moon. Well, you won't be able to play clap in and clap out if you haven't a bow. Emily knew nothing of the mysteries of clap in and clap out and didn't care. Anyway, she wasn't going to have a bow and she repeated this in such decided tones that Rhoda deemed it wise to drop the subject. Emily was rather glad when the bell rang. Miss Brownwell granted Rhoda's request quite graciously, and Emily transferred her goods and chattels to Rhoda's seat. Rhoda whispered a good deal during the last hour, and Emily got scolded for it, but did not mind. I'm going to have a birthday party the first week in July, and I'm going to invite you, if your aunts will let you come. I'm not going to have Isle Burnley, though. Don't you like her? No, she's an awful tomboy, and then her father's is such an infidel. And so is she. She always spells God with a little G in her dictation. Miss Brownwell scolds her for it, but she does it right along. Miss Brownwell won't whip her because she's setting her cap for Dr. Burnley. But Ma says she won't get in because he hates women. I don't think it's proper for her to associate with such people. Isle is such an awful wild queer girl and has an awful temper. So has her father. She doesn't chum with anybody. Isn't it ridiculous the way she wears her hair? You ought to have a bang, Emily. They're all the rage, and you'd look well with one because you have such a high forehead. It would make a real beauty of you. My, but you have lovely hair, and your hands are just lovely. All the Marines have pretty hands, and you have the sweetest eyes, Emily. Emily had never received so many compliments in her life. Rhoda laid the flattery on with a trowel. Her head was quite turned, and she went home from school determined to ask Aunt Elizabeth to cut her hair in a bang. If it would make a beauty of her, it must be compassed somehow. And she would also ask Aunt Elizabeth if she might wear her Venetian bleeds to school the next day. The other girls may respect me more then, she thought. She was alone from the crossroads, where she had parted company with Rhoda and she reviewed the events of the day with a feeling that, after all, she had kept the star flag flying, except for a temporary reverse in the matter of the snake. School was very different from what she expected it to be. But that was the way in life, she'd heard Ellen Green say. You just had to make the best of it. Rhoda was a darling, and there was something about Isle Burnley that one liked. And as for the rest of the girls, Emily got square with them by pretending she saw them all being hanged in a row for frightening her to death with a snake, and felt no more resentment towards them, although some of the things that had been said to her wrinkled her bitterly in her heart for many a day. She had no father to tell them to, and no account book to write them out in, so she could not exercise them. She had no speedy chance to ask for a bang, for there was company at New Moon, and her aunts were busy getting ready for an elaborate supper. 
But when the preserves were brought on, Emily snatched the opportunity of a lull in the older conversation. Aunt Elizabeth, she said, can I have a bang? Aunt Elizabeth looked her disdain. No, she said, I will not approve of bangs. Of all the silly fashions that have come in nowadays, bangs are the silliest. Oh, Aunt Elizabeth, do let me have a bang. It would make a beauty of me. Rhoda says so. It would take a good deal more than a bang to do that, Emily. We will not have bangs at New Moon, except on the molly cows. They are the only creatures that should wear bangs. Aunt Elizabeth smiled triumphantly around the table. Aunt Elizabeth did smile sometimes when she thought she had silenced some small person by exquisite ridicule. Emily understood that it was no use to hope for bangs. Loveliness did not lie that way for her. It was mean of Aunt Elizabeth. Mean. She heaved a sigh of disappointment and dismissed the idea for the present. There was something else she wanted to know. Why doesn't Isle Burnley's father believe in God? she asked. Because of the trick her mother played him, said Mr. Slade with a chuckle. Mr. Slade was a fat, jolly-looking old man with bushy hair and whiskers. He had already said some things Emily could not understand, and which has seemed greatly to embarrass his very ladylike wife. What trick did Isle's mother play? asked Emily Oligog with interest. Now Aunt Laura looked at Aunt Elizabeth, and Aunt Elizabeth looked at Aunt Laura. Then the latter said, Run out and feed the chickens, Emily. Emily rose with dignity. You might just well tell me that Isle's mother isn't to be talked about, and I would obey you. I understand perfectly what you mean, she said as she left the table. End of chapter 8. Recording by Talia. You can find me at vobyt.com.